This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Other Side of Midnight presents The Midnight Files. Midnight in the desert, shooting stars across the sky. Magical journey will take us on a ride filled with the longing, searching for the truth. Will we make it till tomorrow? Will the sun shine on you? My guest is William Burns, New York Times best-selling author. He's written many books, including The Day After Roswell, and uh, he is analyzing the balloon situation, which seems to have captivated the attention and the imagination, quite frankly, of a lot of Americans and a lot of people all over the world. Bill, do you think the fact that uh, the uh, the the president prior, the, uh, the prior president, President Trump, indicated that he wasn't told about this? Uh, do you think that indicates either a failure in military intelligence capabilities or a failure in sort of the, the chain of command with uh, Commander-in-Chief and some of his top generals and maybe even the Secretary of Defense? No, what I think was that since they categorized these um, Trump-era balloons as UFOs, as a matter of policy, UFOs were deep-sixed. That's a matter of government policy. It didn't change. It started changing in 2011. It started changing in 2017. Now it has changed with this um, Office of National Intelligence um, uh, conducting reviews of all these UFO cases. But um, during the Trump administration, absolutely, there was um, just a clampdown on things that could have been UFOs over the United States. That would have been very scary during that administration. So they deep-sixed it. It's interesting that UFOs and UFOs are covered up. One of the people that's been pretty outspoken in hinting, uh, maybe in some cases more than hinting, that there's something else out there is the former director of national intelligence, John Ratcliffe. If he is seemingly so open-minded and encouraging public... uh, exploration of this question, you would have thought that we might have seen some different results in the Trump administration. Once you start pulling, I'll tell you this right now, Frank, because people have been saying this, but, oh, just admit there are UFOs and move it on. No. Once you pull that little thread, you're going to unravel a whole bunch of stuff. The one thing that you're going to have to answer. The minute you say there are UFOs not from this planet, you're going to have to answer this. 
Who are they? Where are they from? Why are they here? And what does that say about us? I mean, what if at some point in the next five years, we figure out that, yeah, there is such a thing as a Yeti, as an abominable snowman, (laughs) as a Sasquatch. What if we find that out? I mean, I've spoken to people, police chiefs, police chiefs, Pennsylvania police chiefs. You know what they how they spend their summers, their vacations? They go Bigfoot hunting in the Allegheny Mountains. I'm serious. I, I go to UFO conventions and I see these police chiefs saying, yeah, we found these tracks. We found this. We found that. The um, If we find out, and this would be a stunning revelation, that what we're calling Bigfoot, was here before us and we replaced them talk about replacement theory homo sapiens replaced bigfoot that's why there's this issue between the two species i mean that could be one fallout from this that is the last thing you want to know well well, i've actually spoken with some cryptozoologists on this program and that's precisely their theory as to what occurred Obviously, these some of the you mentioned the uh, uptick in UFO sightings over Eastern Europe with this Russia-Ukraine war, and uh, you indicated something similar occurred during Vietnam. This is not just an American phenomenon. We've spoken with uh, Nicholas Pope many times before, who used to head the uh, Royal Ministry of Defense, um, basically UFO watching unit for the British. What do we know about the level of international cooperation on UAP sightings, etc., not only between the United States and allied countries, but the United States and adversarial countries? Because I would think if a lot of these uh, these objects, whatever they are, are hovering around nuclear missile silos and places like that, the places that uh, they'd be very likely to be spending a lot of time are not just the United States, but Russia and even China. Do we know if our government has had any in-depth conversations with adversarial governments on the UAP issue? Yes, not so much China, but certainly Russia. In fact, we were... When we were filming um, UFO files, we went to Kapustin Yar, which is the Soviet Union's version, or Russia's version of Area 51. And the kind of stuff we found out that there was an entire Russian um, intelligence operation about UFOs. There have been UFO fights over Moscow. There are stories about, and, and the big thing that got the Russians crazy happened in 1986 when a UFO appeared over a Soviet missile base, just like uh, the the UFO appeared over Malmstrom Air Force Base in the 1960s. It appeared over the Soviet base. And get this, here's what happened. The Soviet controllers, just like our controllers, it's the same thing, Frank. They're sitting in their silos, and they're hardwired to the missile command consoles. And they notice that suddenly, before their very eyes, the missiles, the consoles, turn hot. That the missiles are now being programmed, and they're being fueled, because they're liquid fuels. So they're being fueled, and they're getting ready. And they realize that the launch codes are being entered into the missile computers. Wow. So they go screaming at Moscow Center and saying, you've got to stop this. You, you got to stop this. We, oh, we don't want to start a nuclear war. 
Moscow Center tries to intervene and shut down the silos, they can't. They're blocked. The silos are hot. The codes are punched in, not by, not by the controllers, but by the UFO, and they're hitting the United States. Nothing can stop the launch as the countdown begins, and then they shut completely down. And the message to the Soviet controllers is very simple. We control your missiles, and you don't. And the same thing happened at Momstrom Air Force Base in 1966 and later on at Minot Air Force Base, where a UFO appeared over the missile silos. And suddenly, uh, Captain Salas tells us he was in charge of the— that particular silo, Air Force uh, captain, tells us that the lights just went out, that the silo controllers lost complete control of the guided missiles. And these are hired, hardwired connections, Frank, not digital, but hardwired. These are analog. And suddenly this light, this red light over the Monster Air Force Base shut down the missile silos. That message was as simple as simple could be. You do not have the right to destroy this planet with nuclear weapons. Well, thank goodness. Thank goodness. Um, uh, That's right. You have written the book on Roswell, actually multiple books that involve Roswell. Initially, the contemporary reporting uh, at the time was that the object that crashed was a flying saucer. Within a day or two, the military released a statement and said it's a weather balloon. As far as you're concerned, is there any possibility at all, because the Chinese are calling the spy balloon, they're calling the spy balloon a weather balloon, is is there any possibility at all that what the object that was over Roswell was actually a weather balloon. Here's the funny part about what you just said. They did think it was a balloon. In the first moments of that crash, they thought it was a balloon, but they didn't think it was a weather balloon. What they thought, see, the Chinese didn't invent this. The Japanese invented it. Actually, Napoleon invented this. But um, we believed in 1947 that what crashed at Roswell was a balloon, but it was a Japanese fire balloon during World War II. It's an incredible story. You think the United States is totally invulnerable? We weren't. At the start of World War II, the Japanese Imperial Navy launched anthrax weather balloons at the United States carried across by the ocean currents that were supposed to crash in American cities and spread anthrax. Now, the United States, of course, we realize this. We're not stupid. We realize this. And here's what we realized, that if we told, if we went public with this story, you're talking 1944-ish, 1945-ish. If we went public with this story, You'd be telling the Japanese gunners how successful they were in their targeting. We'd be the long-range spotters for the Japanese artillery launching balloons. So we deep-sixed the story. When the Roswell crash happened, we thought that was a Japanese balloon, a fugu. We called them fire balloons, fugus. That's why we covered it up initially in the first hours and changed the whole thing around. And then replace that story with the Japanese fire balloon with an American weather balloon. 
you knew it couldn't have been a weather balloon because the weather balloon factory was right across the street from the Roswell Army Air Base. So even today, I've been told by CIA folks that that story of keeping the weather balloon and the Japanese fire balloon a secret is to this very day part of the CIA's most successful attempts to keep that secret. Wow. Wow. 800-848-9222. I have a lot of questions about AI and where we're going on that front, but a lot of people are eager to talk with you. Uh, Let me say hello to uh, Chris in the Catskills. Hello, Chris. Hey, uh, good morning, gentlemen. So I've seen UFOs twice in my lifetime, and your visceral response is to tell people that you trust about it. And actually, two months ago, I was going for a walk and I saw UFOs, and I went to call into the station to talk to Frank about it because I had been on the air with the previous host, Dominic Carter. And there was a lot of weird phenomenon going on that night. It was very thick, hazy clouds. You know, I was out taking a walk for like an hour uh, late at night, and uh, there was a full moon out. And I'm not sure if some of the things I saw were optical illusions because of the cloud formations. Maybe he could address that. But I have a question. The part of New York State that I live in is known for having uh, UFO sightings. I had a, a second time. The only other time in my life I saw UFOs was in July of 1988 when I was driving my car. Um, there's high concentrations of magnetite rock in the Catskills northwest of me, like 15 to 20 miles away. Uh, I've been told and I've heard that there's a theory that UFOs derive energy from areas where they fly over where there's high concentrations of magnetite rocks. Could he address those um, questions? Yes, and in fact, to answer your question, there's another connection with magnetite. In crop circle formations, the crop circle formations are heavy in magnetite. In fact, the crop circle formations where these fireballs come down are so heavy with magnetite that birds, migratory birds flying over these crop circle formations avoid the formations. They make giant deviations around the formations. Why the magnetite? When we surveyed some land where there was a a crop circle in New Jersey, what we found was the levels of magnetite in that former crop circle, years later, by the way, years later, that it was heavy with magnetite. Mm. So when you say magnetite, you're on the money. Charles is in Queens. Hello, Charles. Hi, good morning. First of all, fantastic interview, really fascinating stuff Mr. William Burns is telling us. But I have a question. I'm not going to be challenging Mr. Burns. I don't begin to have the knowledge that he has. But this is, there's two things that don't really uh, that's bothering me. One, uh, if you're saying that the um, the U-2 plane with Gary Powers as the pilot was shot shot over Russia, that that was the idea. We wanted them to shoot it down. That would seem that Gary Powers was on a close to a suicide mission. I mean, you know, kamikaze, and you, that doesn't make sense. He ended up living, I believe. You know, he was captured, whatever. The other question would be, 
if if um, if if that was the case, why would they do it when Khrushchev, if my memory is correct, 61 years ago, if when Khrushchev, I believe, was in America, I don't know if that was the time he started taking a shoe off. I think he had a third shoe under the table anyways, to start banging and he's angry while we're flying U-2 planes over Russia. But that was the time America got embarrassed. If what you're saying is accurate and, and we wanted to see what the Russians are going to do, why do it at that time? And why risk Gary Powell's life? Or maybe he knew about it or what? What do you think, though? Seem to... Here's the answer. Here's the answer. Um, it's this, that Ga- Francis Gary Powell wasn't supposed to be shot down. He was flying too low. The um, WABC News, my God, all the way back in the 1980s, did a special with Chris Wallace. On why, on what the purpose of the U-2 planes were, and the and since we already had satellites, we already had a, a tracking. Why were these planes flying so low? Here was the answer. This is what the pilots said: they were ordered to fly low enough to trigger the Soviet anti-aircraft systems, and then fly high enough to escape the missiles when they were shot. So it wasn't just Francis Gary Powers. There were other U-2 pilots, spy plane pilots that were shot at by missiles. The point was to trigger the defenses to know exactly from the radio signals how the Soviets communicated the locations of aircraft, scrub the signals, get them to launch their missiles, fly high enough above the ceiling of the missiles so that they'd miss. Francis Gary Powers was flying too low. That is uh, that is pretty interesting, and that's a version of that the Gary Powers story that I had not heard uh, previously. I want to switch gears because we've spent a lot of time discussing the hopes and fears of artificial intelligence, and uh, I find what's happening now simultaneously very exciting, but also very frightening. There was a story that got uh, maybe not as much attention as I think it deserved. Headline, AI designs proteins that can kill bacteria, paving the way for creation of new medicines. Artificial intelligence apparently designed these bacteria-killing proteins from scratch, and they work. Uh, This AI was tasked with creating proteins with antimicrobial properties. Researchers then created a subset of the proteins, and they found that some did the job. How remarkable is this in terms of the history of technology and human civilization? My initial reaction, when you look at the reality of this, it's frightening. I'll tell you why. Everybody should be afraid of this. This is like the modern Victor Frankenstein. A computer, an artificially intelligent quantum computer, created out of protein a new strain of microbial life. I mean, if, first of all, this flies in the face of everything in the Bible, but the, um, the point is that a computer created life on this planet. Be very afraid. What does that mean? It means that an artificially intelligent computer according to these scientists, 
now has the ability to create bacteria that can do all sorts of things. Let's say between us and our audience that a rogue scientist or a well-meaning scientist who's a little fuzzy in the uh, attic inserts an algorithm into that type of computer which is the um, instruction to clean the planet up from climate change, get rid of all the pollution, clean the planet up from climate change, invent a bacteria that will do that. Do you know what that that bacteria would do, Frank? Well, I imagine it wouldn't be a good situation for those of us that are still driving non-electric cars, for starters. It would kill us because if you want to bring the planet back, to its original condition, right, its climax community condition, get rid of civilization. So you do think there's a... Civilization that's destroyed the planet since the 19th century. We now know that the basic forces of this planet have been altered due to human civilization, to human technology civilization starting with the age of machines in the 19th century. My theory is that if a computer is told to get rid of all the pollution, that's what they would get rid of, us. And it's my theory, it's happened before. We're not the first civilization on this planet. The So you do think that uh, all this AI advanced technology could lead to some sort of a, a Terminator-type situation where artificial intelligence turns on its creators and gets rid of us? Sure. All you have to do, the algorithm, use the H5N1 viral strain. That's bird flu. And that bird flu has been infecting flocks across the planet. Right now, we believe that that particular version of the flu does not transmit to human. It is zoonotic, but it doesn't transmit to human beings. It needs an intermediary party. That intermediary party are pigs. So that's why bird flu and swine flu are remarkably Mm -hmm. alike. And swine flu, because human beings eat pork, swine flu would be a way for the virus to migrate into the human population. And we don't have a cure for it. Um, In terms of AI, right, and what we're doing, what do you think we should be doing as individuals? What should uh, these uh, big tech companies that are rushing to invest in AI, almost like it's the new space race, uh, to implement the AI technology in their search engines? And what should government be doing? Individuals, private sector, big tech companies, and government. How can we kind of, I don't know that we can make sure, but what can we do to try not to be exterminated by AI? You impose upon AI, just the way you impose upon all robots, Isaac Asimov's first rules of robotics. Rule number one is that a robot, and I'm considering artificial intelligence computers to be robots, that robots shall not 
as a matter of law, as a matter of algorithmic law, shall not kill, cause grievous harm, or through their inaction allow the death or grievous harm to human beings. That's the first rule of Asimov's robotics. We impose that rule. We impose that rule that is one step in the right direction. All right, we're going to continue with Bill Burns in just a minute. Uh, If there's time, I want to talk a little bit about these Idaho murders and what the killer here, Brian Koberger, might have been thinking and what might have driven him to uh, kill a few innocent people in the manner that he did. This is uh, The Other Side of Midnight, joined for the hour by Bill Burns, New York Times bestselling author. Uh, You could go on uh, Amazon and uh, check out his work. A lot of great books on there. B-I-R-N-E-S. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano talking with William Burns, New York Times bestselling author. A lot of great books, including The Day After Roswell. Bill, uh, Brian Koberger, this uh, horrible situation in Idaho. A lot of people have been scratching their heads in search of some sort of a motive. Any theories here as to what went on? Yep, I do. Um <clears throat> He was a criminology. First of all, he's a sociopath, so we know that. He's described his own symptoms. He's delusional. He's divorced from reality. But his one hook into reality, his purpose in life, right? It's the whole story of the purposeful life. His story, his purpose in life is to study criminal justice. So from the time he's in college in Pennsylvania um, and then all the way through to um, – Washington State, he is a graduate student in a Ph.D. program that's not small stuff in a Ph.D. program studying criminology. Who's he studying? If you're studying serial killers, the archetype of serial killers has to be Ted Bundy. And I believe from the um, snapshot of his crime that he's reenacting the crimes of Ted Bundy, who becomes his hero. That's my theory, that he's reenacting, because his murders in that um, student apartment house, those are Ted Bundy's Kyle Omega sorority house murders. Wow. Wow. His tracking of this, one, uh, of this one young lady who was um, a female student there, he kept on texting her and visiting the same cafe where she ate over and over again. That is Ted Bundy's first crime of Linda Healy that he knew his victim. In fact, when we were writing our book, the river man, which people should read, which is the snapshot of a serial murder case. When we were writing our book, the river man, we found out 
that Ted Bundy was cashing his checks based on the time stamp on the check, Frank. He was cashing his check at the exact same cashier as Linda Healy. Wow. Who later killed. He was stalking her. That's what this guy was doing. So I would say this crime was lethal cosplay. A lot of uh, listeners, when I first started talking about this, after this fellow was arrested, they brought up comparisons to Leopold and Loeb. Uh, Do you see any comparisons there? No, and I think the real comparison is Ted Bundy, that he studied Bundy. He probably read the book The Riverman. He probably read Serial Killers. I mean, if he studied criminology, he would have read these books. His crimes in Idaho are I'm telling you, it's almost as though he's following step-by-step Ted Bundy's crime. I mean, read the book, read the uh, the case, they're identical. 800-848-9222 if you have questions. Jeff is in, uh, actually, let me go, we have a lot of Queens folks. Let me say hello first to Joe in Queens. Hello, Joe. Yeah, hi. My question is about AI, two things. One would be like it's its, its own master due to uh, the ability to teach itself. Uh, like a, uh, that would be one. And also I think some of these elites think that uh, now that AI is available, that'll substitute for the humans, which they can now eliminate. Bill, what do you think? Well, Well, here's what I think. One, I think the next test for students that are are kids now in school, elementary school students, I think the test for them as they get into their high school years is how to program an AI computer. It's not going away. It's only going to be more and more involved in our daily lives. So the trick is not so much relying on it. But the trick is using it as a database to program it. I think that will be the next level of education. I mean, as an English teacher, I'm obsoleted by this thing. (laughs) I mean, my job is over. Uh, As a lawyer, my job is over. So, um, but you have to learn how to algorithmically program this thing to get it to spit out the information you want. Jeff is in Queens. Hello, Jeff. Hi, thanks for having me. I just want to thank you for having the show, and thank you, callers, because you've got a lot of people that contribute to this uh, conversation that you really can't find out information, I don't think, anywhere else. Um, as far as like aliens, um, people, other light beings, by all means, have they been here? Yes, they have. Do we know that? Well, laser. The only thing I want to talk about the laser, look at CDs and look at the, the gauge that you measured like last year with the COVID. You know, they had the little laser. HVAC guys use it for the vent. They see the temperature coming out. How do they work? How does that laser know to read the temperature and bring it back to the gauge? But then the CD laser could read songs on a disc. So... Like we pointed something at that satellite, at that balloon. We didn't even have to. We we even have to fly near it. We hit that with a laser from somewhere that could tell us everything that's on it, just like they have on the highways. Jeff, they can look at the thank you. Trucks. Thank you. We only so have I about a minute left. I, I want to give Bill Thanks, the the, la, the last word. Thank you for the call, Jeff, and the compliment. 
Jeff, that's what we're doing. I mean, you put your finger on it. That's what we're doing with our communications and laser ability. Do you know, Jeff, I'll be real quick because I know we got to run, um, that TWA Flight 800 that crashed off the south shore of Long Island in Jamaica Bay, that do you know that that was one of the results of a test of a laser carrying data underwater? That's why it was covered up so much because it was a secret weapon back then. Yeah, you wrote a, a great book about the TWA Flight 800 situation, didn't you? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, the downing of TWA Flight 800. I mean, that was, it was Nikola Tesla's dream of a robotic weapon. And it resulted, especially now with this FBI investigation of this guy McGonagall, that resulted in a whole bunch of stuff for the Russians, because the Russians wanted to know what we were doing. Yeah. Uh, Bill, it is always a treat talking with you, whether it's AI, aliens, uh, balloons, or murderers. I can't think of a more well-versed guest. Thank you so much. Okay, you have a wonderful day, Frank. Thank you. You too. Appreciate you staying up late, as always. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. Your influence counts, so use it.